IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IB Talk, the global insurance podcast brought to you by Insurance Business. I'm Paul Lucas, the managing editor of Insurance Business, and last week I mentioned some of the illustrious names we've welcomed to the show over the last couple of months, from industry CEOs to the leaders of associations to last week's guest himself, a former superintendent of the state of New York. Now, though, we welcome someone with perhaps the most eye-catching title of them all, because he is an Emmy Award winner. Uh, in fact, his list of credentials is quite staggering. His career includes 10 years with the New York Times, Sinclair Broadcast Group, Walt Disney Television, and many more. Uh, now he is the CEO and founder of Sales Training World. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Dawn. Ryan, welcome to Ivy Talk. Hey, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. I sure appreciate it. So with credentials like that, Ryan, I don't know where to begin. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, the Emmy. Um, you, you, you won it for marketing excellence. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's um, you know very common for people to only see and only know about the Emmy Awards from celebrities, those folks that you see on the silver screen or those in, in the Emmy case that you would see uh, you know, on the television. And there's literally hundreds of awards in the backgrounds, local, uh, regional, and national for folks that do things like you and I do, those that write, those that compose music, and those that are in the sales and marketing side of things as well. So one of those points in my career, and and just was so honored uh, to have the opportunity to work for the Walt Disney Company and ABC Television. And so we put together a series of advertising and sales campaigns and um, and submitted that for consideration and was able to was able to win. You know, more than anything, um, I did it just so my parents would have something to brag about because I was supposed to go to college to be an attorney and ended up in the sales business. So I always like to say, there you go, mom and dad, something that you can brag about. <laughs> that seems like a pretty good make good, I yes. think. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, what what was sort of any night like then? Because obviously you said it's it's sort of different. We all think of the, the celebrity element of it. Were the, were the sort of celebrities there? Was it a big song and dance? How, how was it? Yeah, so you know you do, do the typical ballroom type of thing, and um, and the the awards that are won by people in writing and music and marketing, you never see those awards uh, on television. And so it's um one of those you always feel like you're kind of uh, you know at the uh, at the small kids table um, in those circumstances. But I think even uh, major market celebrities have had an opportunity to work with with so many big names in the in my career that even they recognize that there's a money side of every business. And there's people involved in the money side of that business. And that's the sales side and the marketing side of that business. The sales side being selling advertising, which without the advertising, the show doesn't exist uh, in, in it's so much that it's not going to continue on the air if it's not profitable. And on the marketing side are the people that are responsible for bringing those eyeballs to a television program. So I've done nothing but sales and marketing for the last 30 years, although, although there was a Paul two weeks. Uh, where I sold cell phones. Um, and so I realized back in the early 90s, I went to my boss and I said, this cell phone thing is going nowhere. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm getting out of this electronic side uh, of the business. And had I stayed with uh, that cell company, I'd probably be the vice president of sales for Verizon uh, right now and have my own plane or something like that. <laughs> but I love sales and marketing, that's for sure. So, so on Emmy night, then you weren't starstruck. It was just another day at the office. It was sort of, it was for me, it's interesting because I have an opportunity to encounter so many different 
big name folks that it's uh, become sort of, uh, if you will, just kind of normal um, in the process. So I actually get a little more starstruck when um, I meet people of like kind of academic um, supremacy, if you will, or academic celebrity. Uh, because those are the folks that I read about and those are the folks that I read books. So I would probably be more uh, excited to meet like a John Grisham, um, you know, than I would, for example, a George Clooney or somebody like that. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll take either, to be honest. But, uh, well, let, 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 let's turn the clock back a little uh, and, and, and tell us about how your career has taken shape. Because I, as I mentioned earlier, there are some incredible companies on your CV. Well, I think that everybody from a very young age is in the sales business. And I try to liken it back uh, in doing training with various companies of different sizes. You remember when you were a kid and you always you know, uh, needed to get something from your parents and there's a level of persistence that allows you to get something done because basically you drive your parents crazy to a point where you're always trying to sell something, the next thing that you want, need you know, or, or desire. So uh, the beginning of my career was really focused on the media side uh, of the world. Um, where we're talking about television and radio and newspapers and those types of things. And what I really found, um, Paul, in working with those various companies is that if you can sell an ad in a newspaper, if you can sell an ad on television, you can sell almost anything. It's one of the hardest things that uh, there is out there to, to sell because you really are selling a hope and a dream. And if you can sell an advertisement, you can almost sell anything. Now, I fully recognize that insurance is a different game. Real estate's a different game. Selling airplanes is a different game. But sales, fundamental sales is fundamental sales. What's interesting, though, Paul, about it is how reluctantly people change their sales approach. So they read a book and they maybe try it a new approach for, say, a couple of days and it doesn't work for them. And they revert back to the old ways of doing things. What's interesting is over my career, I've really prided myself, found a deep pride in always evolving with sales and always evolving with the times. And so one of the things I still do today, I'm responsible for just uh, under a million dollars in sales myself every year. And then I train teams because, Paul, I found that if you don't actively sell in some capacity, you lose touch with the changing of the market and the changing of the people that you're selling to. So I believe that for the last 30 years, I've had a great opportunity to see the depth and breadth of audiences and businesses from aviation to real estate, to insurance, uh, to, to solid sales, software sales, enterprise sales. And so it helps me be a better coach, a better trainer, and a better speaker today. With so many incredible experiences under your belt, though, I mean, what, what prompted you to sort of start out on your own? Because... I'm guessing you were a man in demand and, you know, you could have worked for a, another international giant if you'd have chosen to, but now you've, you've started up your own company. Yeah, it really was the, my boss's inability or lack of desire to change with the times. And so I was hearing things out there on the market. I'd go to a training class and I'd sit always in the front row, just ready to learn. And I'd hear a trainer say things like, you know what you need to do? you need to meet with the decision maker. And I'd look around the room and people would be taking notes. And I thought, really? Is this what we got to get? This is what we're going to get out of, the, out of the class today? And I always kept challenging these trainers to give me more, give me more stuff, give me new things. And they couldn't do it. And I kept saying, okay, there's got to be some new subject lines for emails. There's got to be some new templates. There's got to be some new ways of doing things. 
And when I would propose new ideas, I would always, I was always scolded, whether it was a boss, whether it was a corporate trainer, um, I'd read a sales book and I'd say, this is just rubbish. I mean, this is, this was written in the eighties and here we are in the two thousands. We've got to do something different. And so I just, I, I'm very, I'm very supported in my family. Whenever I have a new idea, my wife is always the first one to say, let's try it. Give it a try. Why not? And so when I said, I think that I can train better than all these other trainers, I don't think they're relevant. She said, let's give it a try. So I started speaking at some conferences and kind of got known for being, if you will, a little edgy because I was challenging those copyrights of the 80s and the 90s. I was challenging sort of, if you will, the Carnegie's of the world or the Sandler sales training or the integrity selling systems. And those are all great systems, don't get me wrong. But I was challenging the norms of those systems because I didn't feel like they evolved very aggressively for what we're trying to do, whether it's real estate insurance or whatever. And so that's really where it all started, just my desire to find somebody that was going to offer me something new and I couldn't find it. And so I decided to create it on my own. And I really believe that I kind of started a little bit of a movement. Um, I have people that email me regularly, uh, Paul, and will say, hey, really appreciate you being willing to kind of be on the edge of this sales game and push the boundaries and push the norms because it really helped me in my sales life get out of a rut uh, get started in a new business, where in some cases, you know, I've have examples of people where it's actually saved their businesses because their business, not just them, their business was caught in in a sales rut. So, I mean, within sales training world, then um, how do you? I guess I mean, you talked about there just you know your your past bosses not sort of changing with the times, and that's why you sort of branched out on your own and, and, and obviously had the success that you have, but how are you able to keep yourself relevant? How do you keep yourself in check if you want and constantly evolve? Man, it's a great question. And I wish people would focus on relevancy in their, in their personal life. <laughs> they would focus on relevancy as they're raising their kids, uh, dealing with their parents, dealing with their bosses, et cetera. So what I, I have to do is I have to sell. People say to me all the time, well, do you really need to be out on the street selling things or on the phone selling things? And I say, as, as, as time constrained as I am, I feel like I have to do it. One of the things that I respect deeply about trainers out there and coaches, like, for example, Grant Cardone and people like that, is that they're actively engaged in the selling process today. I really believe the moment you stop doing something is the moment that you begin to lose relevancy, especially if you're out there on the pulpit pontificating the way so many people are. And the other thing I share with people all the time is you want to be really careful about what you read, because if you look at the copyright in a book and it's 1985, you know, the 80s might be calling and they want that book back. It's not that there's not some nuggets that can be found there, but selling to a millennial today is different than selling to a millennial yesterday. Selling to a baby boomer today is different than it was just a few years ago. Selling to Gen Xers uh, like myself is different today than it was yesterday. You've got to be willing to move and shake with the times, measure things, track things when it's not working. Don't keep retrying to define, redefine insanity. It's, you know, Paul, it's one of the things I notice that happens with salespeople and organizations all the time. They have this sort of vested interest in daily trying to redefine insanity. They keep doing the same thing over and over again, but they think if they work harder at it, 
they're going to get a better result. And I'm a big fan of working smarter, but not necessarily always working uh, less hard. I'm a big fan of working smarter and working harder. <laughs> a lot of people say, I want to work smarter and not harder. Well, why don't you be smarter and work harder? And I think you've got then, you know, two uh, arrows in your quiver that you can use to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. But I imagine when you mentioned relevancy there, and I, I'm sure, you know, some of our audience, you know, I mean, they're predominantly made up of insurance professionals and, sure. and there might be some out there thinking, you know, oh, Ryan sounds great, brilliant resume. How does this really re- relate to me? You know, you're, you're not actually out there selling insurance. How can you help me? I have, I have learned more from people outside of my industry than people that I learned from within my industry. And the reason is because you're not going to learn a whole lot from somebody that's living under the same bubble as you. I'm sure they're a nice person and they can give you strategies that have worked for them in the past. And because those strategies are different than what you're currently doing, you might say, wow, that's a great idea. I'm going to try that. What I have found is my greatest learning moments have come from people outside of my industry. For example, if I'm working for, I do a lot of outdoor events. My wife is the producer of numerous outdoor events. And so I find great ideas for selling those outdoor events, sponsorships, et cetera, from people in real estate or from people that I work with in agriculture or in in aviation. And so one of the biggest things that I find, Paul, just in general, is if you were in the insurance space, the relevancy piece is really, really important. One of the areas, if I had to pick one to focus on, is really just understanding the person that you're reaching out to. Pretty much everybody, everybody's on LinkedIn. They've got some type of social media profile. Maybe they blog, they share things on Twitter. Now more than ever before, I remember when it was only the phone. I mean, you you had to get somebody on the phone to learn about them. Now you can go in over-armed with information. And so you want to be careful about it. So being relevant to me is about having a good amount of knowledge about Paul or about Bill or about Julie, but not coming in uh, with, you know, both of your, you know, uh, if not coming in with so much information that it makes you come across as being arrogant. But when you're prospecting somebody, having a high level of relevancy is saying things like, hi, Paul, I see that you do this in your business. I've got an idea to help you with that, to prove that you're relevant and you're not just a generic person that's out there trying to sell them something. So tell us then, um, where you think that maybe some people are, are going wrong with their sales strategy? So if I, if I was to say to you, you know, give me three things that people do wrong, what would they be? I would say the first thing is they prospect in very generic ways. The second thing is they ask really old school questions that we've been asking forever that we should probably change. And then the third thing, which is most important, is they do not set up a solid follow-up plan to close the sale. Those are the three main things. Well, let's focus in on those. And so um, firstly, tell me, how can we be less generic? The biggest thing of being less generic is using the tools that are in front of you. And that is going to LinkedIn and realizing what does someone's resume look like? Do you have connection points with them? Is there an alumni uh, situation that you share with them? Do you perhaps root for the same football team? Um, you know, are there things where you maybe have crossed paths in the past? Do you share a mutual connection? Because, you know, in sales, there's nothing better than a good old fashioned referral. What I find is that most salespeople during the prospecting process are generic. They're reaching out in generic ways. They're mass emailing people, which is very, very inefficient. 
So if someone was to reach out to me, just as an example, to sell me business insurance, just as an example, and they didn't mention the name of my business, the type of the business, what it was, just said, I'd like to meet about your business insurance needs. That doesn't intrigue me at all. I feel like you want to, in the prospecting process, reach out to somebody in a tangible way, explain that you do understand their business a touch, and you've got a way to help them, save them time, save them money, what make them money, whatever the circumstance is. But this whole idea of prospecting in a very generic way and just throwing something, uh, things against the wall to see what sticks, that's called spaghetti style strategy. It doesn't work. Prospecting in generic ways is just not going to yield you good results, especially in a post-COVID world where people are inundated with generic emails. Yeah, so it's a lot, about a lot more than just changing the name at the top of an email is what you're saying. For sure. Absolutely, for sure. And and you mentioned as well there about sort of the, the, the old questions that are that are focused on, on the sale rather than the client. Um, but ultimately, we want the client to buy here. So how do we strike that balance? Yeah, I think that one of the important things is to recognize that when you come to a conversation with somebody and you're not prepared for the conversation, they can find you out very quickly. So when you ask a question, which is age old, it's in every book that sales book that's been written, for example, tell me a little bit more about your business. Don't be surprised if someone says back to you, well, Ryan, I could save you some time. Why don't you tell me what you know about my business? And then you're, and then you're caught, you're caught flat footed. So those types of questions, um, for example, one that has grown to great prominence that should be deleted from everyone's uh, repertoire, so to speak, is what keeps you up at night? Well, I mean, don't be surprised if someone now in today's environment might be sort of a smarty pants and say, my dog, why? <laughs> or something like that. You know, a question that sometimes will be asked or things along the lines of when you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, what are you thinking about? You know, it's just an awkward and mildly creepy question to be, to be asking. But yet it's one of those questions that I hear asked on nearly every sales call in, in nearly every industry. People today, especially millennial buyers, and I love millennial buyers. Remember now, especially those folks that are listening to your show that are not millennials, okay? Millennials have children. They run businesses, okay? A lot of us see millennials as young children. These are grown adults. Be nice to millennials. You may be working for one of them one day. Be careful, right? <laughs> Is to just really recognize that they like transparency, but they really demand that you come to the sales call prepared. They want you to know a little bit about them, a little bit about their business, depending on what type of insurance you're selling. And they want you to come with a certain level of trust and credibility. And this whole customer needs assessment, Paul, where you ask 15 questions that maybe two of them you really need to ask, those questions, in my opinion, are just really old and need to be reformatted. It just depends on what exactly it is that you're, you know, that you're selling. So if I was challenging your listeners today, I would say, look at the questions that are a part of your customer needs assessment. Eliminate 50% and then revise the rest for 2020. And it, it, it's a great point about the millennials as well. I, I barely scrape into the millennial category and I'm pushing 40 <laughs> with, with, with gray hair, Ryan. So, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, well, but, but you, sorry, go on. No, no, it's, it's a buying set that will teach mm -hmm. you a lot. So I'm 48 and I've learned more from millennial buyers than anyone else in my entire career. They, they force you to be transparent. 
They force you to be prepared and they do not accept exaggeration as a part of the sales process. And I'm an old school sales guy. I'm like Mark Twain. I think he said something along the lines of the absence of exaggeration is an absence of creativity. And I'm one of those people in sales. And millennials have helped me be a better salesperson because they force me not to exaggerate, have my story correct, have my facts correct. They have helped me be a better salesperson. And for that, I'm very appreciative of all of my millennial clients and my millennial uh, buyers as well. You mentioned uh, a little earlier that perhaps the, the most important element here is, is the follow-up plan. Can you elaborate on that for us? It is, it is one of the pieces of the puzzle that is just never put in play. It's just not. You get to the end of the sales call, and most people do not know what to do, Paul. They just don't. It's like they've practiced the beginning, they've practiced the middle, and we're ready for the, the grand finale of the fireworks show, and it doesn't occur correctly. Now, we all know that at the end of a sales call of any kind, whether you're selling a $50 million you know, airplane or you're selling you know, a $5 candy bar to somebody, at, at, at the end of it, or maybe not a $5 candy bar, but you get my point. At the end of the sale, there needs to be some ta-da, some razzle-dazzle moment, and people are not prepared for it. So when you get to the end and someone says, I like you, Paul, I like your product, um, but I just really need to think about it. The most common thing for someone to do is, okay, well, let's you know, just set a time to, to follow up. And that's not enough. It, it's not enough. It's so important. We could spend an hour on this, and I promise, uh, friends, we won't. It's so important for you and the person that you're meeting with to agree on a follow-up plan. You've got to agree on a follow-up plan. So some things like this, Paul, I'm trying to sell you insurance. We get to the end of the conversation. You say to me, Ryan, I like what you're saying. Um, I'm, I'm interested. I'm going to run this up the proverbial flagpole, and I'm going to get, try to need to get these a type of approvals. My response to you, Paul, that is fantastic. First and foremost, let's just both agree you love this idea. I do. Great. What do, what do the people above you need from me? Let me help you help me and figure out what that is. The second piece is, what is the perfect, how can I follow up with you so that I won't be an annoying salesperson, but yet I'll follow up in a manner that makes it work for you? Is it text? Is it phone? Is it smoke signals? Is it cookies? What is it? What's the, what is the plan that'll work for you? And then there's always another step, a final step, and that is, Paul, if we lose connection with each other during this follow-up process, how should I re-engage with you? What's the most appropriate way for me to push or re-engage with you? Because I don't want to be a typical salesperson. I want to be of help to you. I want to be the best service provider to you. And so at the end of that sales call, I take it a completely different way. And when I speak at conferences or train teams on this, their eyes get big as golf balls because they don't have a follow-up process like this in place. So because of this, Paul, it's not that I don't lose sales. I just don't lose track of people. So those of you that are listening to the program, if you lose track of people in the sales process, it's normally because at the end, your follow-up process isn't rock solid and doesn't really contain those components that you've agreed agreed upon. Paul, I think it's one of the most important parts of the sale. And most people, unfortunately, they just drop the ball. 
Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I've got to say the cookie plan would work with me every time. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but are there any other good practices um, around sales strategy? I mean, this is a very sweeping question, I know. But if you were to just sort of maybe highlight one or two points uh, for the audience out there that you think, you know, these are these are sort of surefire things that you should be doing and, and that are very relevant for, for the insurance market as well. What, what would those practices be? I would think one of the ones that I would really point out is the rule of three and three. And I think this applies to your life uh, as well, Paul, in what you do. The rule of three and three specifically focuses on email strategies. Three words in the subject line, three sentences in an email, max. If salespeople in any industry were just to adopt the rule of three and three, three words in the subject line, three sentences max in an email, just that one change alone would make a dramatic difference in their sales life. And then the second thing as it relates to email, et cetera, is that track what you're doing. Use a CRM, track what you're doing and make sure if a subject line works, you rinse and repeat it. If there's a template that you use that's working, three and three, rinse and repeat it. Very often we don't know what works and what doesn't work. So identify repeatable patterns of success and repeat those things. But the rule of three and three, in my opinion, if people that listen to this program made one change, that was it, they would see a dramatic difference in their in their sales life. Excellent. And any ideas on on subject line suggestions? I'm just thinking, you know, buy this please. Or does it need to be a bit more complicated than that? Yeah, about those pictures normally um, works. No, I'm I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Yeah, a new idea for you, a new way to help you, things that are different, things that are unique, but you don't want to be clever to a point where you're baiting and switching people. Like, for example, free lunch, and they open it, and then it's a sales email. I think that you want to be relevant around new ideas, ways to save people money, ways to make them money, ways to save them time, things that are that are super, super short. I was just wondering is one of my favorites, but the one that gets me the best, I'm glad you asked. The one that gives me the best results is a date. So if I want to meet with somebody on December the 12th, for example, the subject line would be December 12th question mark. And it gets me a great open rate because people will say, "Mm, did I miss something? So just using a date in the subject line uh, gets me the best open rate of almost anything that else that I do in the sales business. I think we're all going to be inundated with emails with dates in now. Um, <laughs> Ryan, before before we wrap up, obviously you're an incredibly busy guy. How do you escape from it all and unwind? Well, I escape in, in a couple of ways. One of the things I enjoy is I enjoy eating and I enjoy grilling outdoors. I become quite the pit master here at our family of smoking meat and cooking uh, things outdoors from meat to desserts and, and things like that. And when we were able to participate, uh, I'm also a big fan of, of cars and automobile racing. Um, I'm a big fan of Formula One as well as as well as well uh, NASCAR. But I would be honest with you to say that I just enjoy working. And so I work with my wife as she produces outdoor equestrian events. So I help her sell her sponsorships. I also act as the uh, guy on the announce- uh, over the speaker that announces, makes all the announcements and, uh, and things like that. So I wish I could say that I totally escaped, but I have been able to, to go to the beach and, and unplug for a couple of weeks. But I will admit, Paul, I still check my email two times a day. So I, I have to admit that I don't unplug completely. But I, there are things that I do uh, where I can spend some time away from the office and uh, focusing on the, on the family. But my kids are almost out of the house, so I'm going to get to start traveling with my wife again uh, very, very soon. That's the hope anyway. 
And you, you mentioned there being a, an older sports fan and um, Formula One and, and, and NASCAR. Have you got behind the wheel yourself? Yeah, I've had the opportunity to go to uh, a couple of the schools, the Mercedes-Benz school that's uh, up at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. And so that's been, uh, you know, quite, uh, quite exciting. I don't know that um, I, I have the car that uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, has, uh, nor, am I champ- <laughs> nor am I the champion uh, like, he, like he is. Um, but I do enjoy that, that, uh, that piece of it. Although it was recommended to me that I should probably do something, A, that's uh, a little bit safer, <laughs> and B, that is not quite that stressful. Um, so that I can get my blood pressure uh, down uh, a little bit lower, but uh, I do work. Uh, I do work too much, uh, but I also just really enjoy uh, reading. And then I have just a little, you know, uh, that hobby of of getting out and, and cooking is a great way. I find great pleasure in feeding people. It's just, it's a, I don't know, it's a sort of a grassroots humbling kind of thing when you when you feed a group of people and they get joy from eating what you've cooked. It's just a, it's a real, it's a, it's a real joy. So I can understand why, why Gordon Ramsay if, over all these years, he still uh, enjoys to be in the kitchen, enjoys being in the kitchen. Cause when you see the smile on someone's face and they're eating what you've cooked, it's just a, it's a real, it's a real sense of pride and a real sense of joy. So I, I really feel like that's a great escape as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely an eater more than a cook, but it's quite ironic. Just as you started talking about auto racing, there, uh, the, one of my uh, neighbours started up his motorbike. Um, so I don't know if that got picked up on our on our sound, but if it was, it was kind of great timing, I think. But um, yeah, Ryan, you've been absolutely brilliant. And tell us if, if people do want to reach out to you on the, on the back of this conversation, how can they get hold of you? Yeah, so the best thing to do is just go to the Ryan Dorn website. Uh, so RyanDorn.com. And my last name has, has been unusual for my entire life, D-O-H-R-N. So RyanDorn.com and, and love to work with uh, various teams and love speaking at conferences once we get back uh, to uh, going to conferences and, and live events. I know, Paul, that you're excited to get back to the, to the live events as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, just a week prior to the recording of this, because you were at one of our virtual events and uh, a standout performer for us, you did a wonderful job. And I think you've been great again today, Ryan. So thank you very, very much. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I've been Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.